Well, let me ask this question. So we're going to be in Matthew 24 today. Uh, we're going to be looking at 36 to 51. Uh, remember the context of this is the disciples saying, hey, uh, when are you going to return? When will the end times be? Uh, and what will it look like? What will be happening around it? And so uh, last week, we talked about leaning into the reality of the confidence that Jesus will return and it will be sooner uh, than we think, but we also name the fact that it might take longer than we think. I don't know how all that holds together, but uh, that's the context. And before we jump into it today, let me ask you this question. And Todd already hinted at this. How has waiting over the course of the last 14 months gone for you? How's waiting gone for you? What have you learned about yourself? Now, I feel like there's like three stages that I've seen in my own life and in the lives of others, and I, I know not everybody's experience is the same, but but I feel like the first phase was what I call the quarantabi phase. You remember the quarantabi phase? That was quarantine hobbies, right? Uh, we just did a thousand things, right? So some of us, uh, we had a sourdough starter, right? Right? Sourdough starters. Everybody made bread. Um, some of us bought a Peloton, right? Bought a Peloton, either the bike or that crazy um, treadmill. Uh, some of us said, I'm just actually going to read books. Uh, I actually downloaded a bird watching app. I did. Nerd alert. I totally... I was on my back deck calling birds. I was like, oh, look, there's that. I was pushing the little bird call. That's a true thing, right? We took photography classes. We learned how to cook. We learned how to sew. Is there, are there any families left without a dog? Any? <laughs> I know both of you are here uh, who don't have one. But uh, we did puzzles. We talked, right? That was the quarantine phase. Then December to February happened, and then I think we hit apathy, Right? Total apathy. We gave up, right? Uh, we, hadn't, we haven't had a haircut for nine months, and we weren't going to get one. Our sourdough starter needed a haircut too because we let it sit a little too long, and some mold and stuff began to grow. Our Peloton turned into a clothes rack, right? And then I think hmm, March or so, we entered full on into the rebellion phase. Can I demonstrate at least a part of what rebellion phase looks like by my use of a mask? Ready? Here's the beginning of the pandemic. Here's a little bit further. Oh, we go a little bit further. Oh, here we go. And then I think this is where we are right now. I think we're there. I think this is where we are in the rebellion phase of the pandemic. Now, making light of a lot of things and Again, I don't mean to step on toes, but, but honestly, I do believe the pandemic has shown us something about ourselves and about our hearts, especially as we wait. I think our hearts are prone to eventually move to places of apathy and rebellion when those unfulfilled longings continue. This has been 14 months. We're starting to lose our mind, right? To think that we don't respond similarly as we wait for Christ to return, well, we're probably just not paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in our hearts because I believe our hearts are just as prone as we wait for Him to return to move towards a place of apathy and rebellion. I think Jesus sees this happening as well, and I think that's really the crux of where we're going to spend our time here today. And Jesus is essentially saying, I am going to return, so be ready. He's going to call his followers to wait expectantly and to wait reliably here today. And so again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 36 to 44. Here's what Jesus says. He says, concerning that day and hour, talking about his return, 
No one knows. Remember that. Ready? No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one be taken, one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if a master of a house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house uh, to be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Well, Lord, be with us. Every single one of us are in a position of waiting, whether we thought about it this morning or not. And I will admit my own heart this week wrestling with these pictures of apathy and rebellion in my own life against you as I wait, as I grow increasingly impatient. And so, Lord, meet us by your Holy Spirit through your word this morning. Would you work in and through me, and would you, uh, just as Andrew prayed, prepare our hearts to wait expectantly, to wait reliably, and to trust that you will return. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so as we jump in today, we're going to start off, this first section is going to get a little heavy. We're going to do some theologizing as we jump in, because there's a lot of things to really uh, kind of tease out of the beginning of this passage. And so here's the three T's I'm going to talk about. One is Trinity, two is timing, three is taken. So Trinity, timing, and taken, uh, and that's where we're going to be here this morning. So the first thing I want you to know is, is as you read this section, as the disciples are saying, when are you coming back? Did you see his response? Concerning the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels. Not even me. Only the Father does. Now, how does that hit you? Is there any part of you that's like, wait a minute, you're God. This doesn't make sense. You're supposed to know all these things. Well, if you have asked that question, you're not the first in history. In fact, this was one of the verses that the, uh, the council, the church council at Chalcedon in A.D. 451 wrestled with. There were people who were looking at verses like this and saying, this means Jesus is not God. And so they wrestled this through, and uh, there's a lot of different heresies and whatnot that were battled here in statements. But one of the statements that came out of this is they, basically the decision of the church at that time is, and we hold to this today, that Jesus is perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. So the big fancy term for this is called the hypostatic union. It's this idea that Jesus is 100% God while being 100% human. And for our finite human minds, that is hard to wrestle out. But that is what Scripture contends over and over again. Now, there are different passages. Wherever we are in the Bible, it's highlighting one of those two aspects of Jesus' ministry. So we see him highlighted as God in places like the tomb of Lazarus where he has command over death and resurrection life. Here, we see his humanity come out. And, and, and the reality is, and this is the terminology that they use, is that when Jesus became uh, a human, he basically laid aside, right? It didn't go away. He still had these attributes, but he laid aside those attributes and embraced humanity. One of them is omniscience, 
right? The ability to uh, know everything. Uh, one commentator said, limitation of knowledge is a necessary condition of a real incarnation. He was truly human. Now, we know intuitively that he laid aside other things like his omnipotence, his ability to be all-powerful because, you know what he did? He had to eat food. He had to sleep, right? He wasn't just this little generator that just stayed awake all day. He knew what it felt like to be hungry and thirsty and sleepy. He wasn't omnipresent, right? Always present everywhere at one time because he traveled by foot from point A to point B. And so all that to say, and here's, here's where this can be encouraging, understanding Christ's humanity, is that he also knows what it's like to wait and to not have that answer. For me, that was encouraging this week. As I wait, I have a Savior who is able to identify with me in my weakness because he too had to wait. So that's the Trinity, right? One God, three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God the Son on display there. Here's the second T is timing. Timing. Now remember, he said, no one knows the hour. So, so we should not, there should not be an ear given or effort given to naming the date and hour where Christ will return. No one knows. But he does say in 42 and 44, be prepared. Be ready. He says no one knows, but, but he also says with that, be ready because it could happen at any time. So while it's not wise to fix a date, right, uh, and say here's where I think he's going to return, there is a study of end times, and you're going to see how all this threads together here in just a moment. But there are people who study the nature of his return. What might be going on around it, right? And so I'm going to give you a quick overview of the different views of end times. So did you know that there are different views of how Christians believe uh, what will be happening around the time of Jesus' return? Uh, there's four predominant ones. There's, there's little nuances in all of them. We're not going to take a ton of time and work through them, but I am going to show you some pictures here. Uh, and, and I would just say, again, this is an opinion-level thing. Uh, this is a place where Christians are called to be convinced of, but also not divide over. Uh, but this is one of the views on millennialism. When I say millennialism, <laughs> the reason there's a lot of, not confusion, but unclarity in different models is because a lot of this is really an interpretation of what's going on in six verses in Revelation chapter 20. So we're really pulling a whole lot out of that. And yes, there's some other places as well. But this is the amillennialism view. Uh, this is the view that uh, really we are living in the church age right now uh, in kind of a figurative millennium. And then eventually Christ will return at that point, there will be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers. That's where judgment will happen, and then there's an eternal state. Now, full disclosure, I land in this camp, uh, although, you know, I'm sympathetic to other camps, but this is where I am. Then it gets more confusing. See, they add stuff. That, see, maybe that's why I'm on mill. It's just too confusing as we keep going. But uh, post-mill uh, is, there's the church age, then there's a millennium, uh, or a reign of Christ, and then he returns in the resurrection and eternal state. And it gets more complicated when you get to classical premillennialism. Um, and so, you know, you've got the church age, and then you've got believers meeting Christ in the air and coming down and establishing his reign, and then you've got resurrection of believers. There's a tribulation back there, an eternal state. And so let me just full stop here and say, if you go to another PCA church, if you go to most Reformed churches, uh, the person preaching, at least, will hold to one of these three views. And there's lots of us, right, who, who fall into these different camps. My professors at our denominational seminary, I had one of each in these categories. 
And I'll say there's one other category that this was probably the most popular in our culture, at least in the uh, 80s and 90s. This would be dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism, um, as some would call it. Uh, and so really the, there's that aspect of the rapture, so Left Behind book series, if you remember that, or if any of y'all were scared to death in Christian school by the movie Thief in the Night, where it's like a lawnmower running with a pile of clothes and the raptures happen. Don't do that to your kids. It's scary. But 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 that's where a lot of that thinking came from, and, and that emerged from largely it was popularized by a man named John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. And, and let me just say this. If you want to research this a little bit more and just get a good, fair overview, get an ESV study Bible. It is such a great resource for a young believer, a believer who's been at it for a while. It's got great articles. This is where these graphics actually came from. And so let me just encourage you in that. But, but with this last one, and, and this is where we're getting to, you see that uh, resurrection of believers and they go up and they're up in the clouds for basically seven years. That's what's historically looked at as the rapture, as the rapture. And uh, in large part, and that's where the term taken comes from, and that comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, at least in part, where it says, then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. All right, so there's ways of interpreting this, and I'm going to give you my way of interpreting this that fall into one of those first three categories. When it says, meet the Lord in the air, the Greek term that is used there is, is basically, typically in history, used to uh, depict a dignitary's reception by a townspeople. So a dignitary is coming into the town. The people in the town will go out to meet them outside of the city walls and will usher them into the city. And so historically, how interpreters have taken this, uh, at least in the not looking at this as the rapture, is we will meet Jesus in the air. Our ears are tuned to the trumpet. The trumpet will sound. We will greet Jesus in the air and we will usher him down to establish his reign in the new heavens and the new earth. And the reason all of that ties into what we're talking about today is what we see in verses 39 to 42 and who is taken and who you actually want to be in that scenario. So if you're following along, you look at it and you say, hey, what's going on? Well, there are people who are eating and drinking and giving people to be married during Noah's day. And then all of a sudden, the floods come. Well, the people who actually are the ones in this place of judgment are the ones who are taken not the ones who remain. The ones who are taken are the ones in this position who are in the position of judgment. You don't want to be taken in this context. That's what happens to the man in the field, right? Two workers are in the field. One is taken. That depicts judgment. You have the two ladies working in uh, the grain mill, and one is taken. And so I'm just naming What is in full view here is this picture of judgment, particularly for those who are in the place of being taken. Now, can I just encourage us to this? Because people can just lose their minds on end time stuff. We can fight. and I mean, I've seen it in churches that I've been a part of. And I just want to say this. This is opinion level. And we need to operate with charity with one another. And again, I want to just reiterate this. This is all that is required for someone's end time view to be a biblical end time view. Return of Christ. Up, meaning the dead will rise, there is a last judgment, and there is an eternal destiny. We have all the room in the world to disagree in between there. And so that is the rule of a Christian worldview of the end times. All right, we doing okay after that? (laughs) You laughed. People would, (laughs) 
We'll see what my email inbox looks like this week. All right. <clears throat> so here's some takeaways. I think we do need to be really cautious and probably not listen to the voices of people who try to fix the date of Jesus' return. In part, if Jesus doesn't know or didn't know, I believe he knows now, but on his earthly uh, time on earth, if he did not know, I think we could be pretty certain that there's nobody who's going to nail it if they say Jesus is coming back May 23rd, 2024. The angels don't know. No human being knows. They're actually rebelling, I think, against Scripture. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous because it takes our eye off of Jesus Christ. That's not the point. The date fixing is not the point. Jesus is saying, look to me, have faith in me, rely on my return. I also think it's dangerous because it can lead to disillusionment. What happens if you are convinced he's coming back on May 23rd or whatever, 2024, and it comes and goes? You're disillusioned. And so I think there's a danger there. Here's the second thing I would just say, uh, is that Scripture never promotes the question, when will Christ return? You'll notice in this passage, chapter or verse 3, the disciples asked it and Jesus spun it. And he said, that's not the right question to ask. The question to ask is, will you be ready? Will you be ready? And so let's unpack what ready looks like from the rest of this passage. The first thing that Jesus calls them to do is to wait expectantly. He's basically in 37 to 41 saying, hey, during Noah's day, they were just doing the normal things of life. They were being lulled to sleep if you will. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving themselves over to being married, right? And those aren't bad things. But they kind of got lulled to sleep. You had two guys working in the field doing the mundane things. Boom, it comes upon them. Two women working in the grain mill. Boom, it comes upon them. This comes back to what we talked about last week. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled for Christ to return. It can happen in a second. The term that he repeats or, or what he's basically saying in verse 42, he says, stay awake. Be vigilant. Constantly have our ears to listening for the return of Christ. 43 is this picture that's really all throughout the New Testament. And Jesus saying, you know, if a master of a house knew the thief was coming that night, he would have remained vigilant and kept his eyes open, right? 1 Thessalonians 5 is one of those pictures. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Friends, these prophecies are not history written in future tense. They essentially act like film previews or hazard warning lights on the highway, lifting our hearts to expectation and, yes, warning. And I say warning because what is true of the believer on the other side of Jesus' return is indeed the new heavens and the new earth, where tears will be wiped away, where there'll be no more sin, right? All the hard things made untrue. But what Jesus has in front of us today is not that necessarily, but it's actually the storm of judgment. Friends, we don't like that. Our culture hates that. If you want to wrestle out the judgment piece, go back and listen to the sermon back in December as we talked about the the necessity of judgment. You don't want to follow a God who does not judge wrong. And we're naive to think that we don't bring our own forms of judgment every day to people around us just based on our own broken ethics. But what's in line or what's in view here is the storm of judgment that Jesus is talking about. 
So I grew up in Virginia Beach, and in this kind of hurricane alley, in a sense, we had to prepare for hurricanes quite often. Uh, and there's one uh, image that is really burned into my mind uh, and from 1989. The reason I remember that is because uh, right before we moved out of my childhood home, I went up in the attic and I saw where my dad and I had spent the day boarding up windows and stocking up on water. And, and I went up into the attic and I had a Sharpie and I wrote on there, Anthony was here before Hugo 1989. Hugo was a hurricane that was supposed to hit. It was a Category 5. It took a left and hit South Carolina, and it didn't come up and hit us where we were. But, but, but there is just this reality that, that knowing that a hurricane is going to make landfall is a lot different than actually being prepared for it. I think a case in point, I, I like Discovery Channel type stuff, and I remember back in the early 2000s watching this documentary that said, one of the cities at greatest risk, right? But first of all, you don't need to watch these shows. They're a little creepy and they're all doomsday. But I remember one. It's like, the city that will get obliterated if a major storm ever hits is New Orleans. You know, this much of the city is below sea level. And, and I watched it just thinking, oh, that's just one of those scary movies. Well, what happened like a year later was Hurricane Katrina. Uh, where they had known for decades that that was actually indeed true, that they were totally ill-prepared for the landfall of one of these major hurricanes. And as a result, uh, there was over a 1,000 people who died over the course of that storm. Friends, I think in part what Jesus is, is communicating to his disciples is be ready. There is a hurricane that's going to make landfall. Don't throw a hurricane party. Don't just hang out and pretend that this isn't a reality. You see, part of the reason that, that, that Jesus tells us this is first, it keeps us hopefully sober. Hopefully sober that there is a judgment to come. He wants us to take our sins seriously. As we look at sin and rebellion against God in our lives, you know what it does? It hardens us to Him. It might reveal something about our heart that we've actually never taken refuge in Him in the first place. And the second part of this we won't get to read for time's sake, but the second half of this that follows is actually Him saying, hey, um, sin is hardening and deadening and could actually depict that you are actually not mine. And so the warning of this storm is for us to use, as we think of it expectantly, to repent. To constantly turn away from the things that we think are going to give us safe haven and to turn to what Jesus is saying, hey, I am your safe haven. Come here, believe into me, into my safety. I think our understanding of the storm to come also makes us more open to direction. I tell you what, even today, when we lived in the Midwest, and you know, spring is horrible in the Midwest, y'all. If you lived in the Midwest, it is the scariest. Tornadoes are like all the time, right? And so when those sirens go off and my little app goes off, my weather radio app, like I respond, right? I am more open to direction. I get into my basement if I truly believe that that storm is coming. Because I would say this, God can guide expectant Christians. They're open to His direction, ready for the unexpected. But those devoid of expectancy are actually really, really hard to shift. I think as believers, if we truly believe a storm is coming, we will be buried in His Word. We will be going, hey, how then shall I live? We will be on our knees in prayer, begging for His guidance. I remember the drawn faces, so we also got the news feed out of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. 
And I remember the mayors of those towns, they begged for like a week for people to get out. Category 4 storm, you can't get out. This little ribbon of land is going to get obliterated, right? We can't get to you if there is an emergency. And to the point where they're like, take a Sharpie. If you're not leaving, you make that choice. You want to go have a hurricane party, write your, do us a favor, write your social security number on your arm so when we find you, probably deceased afterwards, we'll know how to identify you. Friends, in a way, judgment is just... God giving us over to what we really want anyway? And I think that is a picture of it. We have such a hardness against him that we reject him and we become unmovable. Knowing that there is a storm coming, Jesus is being gracious to encourage us to come to safety. Here's the other thing it does, is it causes us to consider others. Friends, I remember again, this is like Anthony's storm stories, right? But I remember one of the storms where, I think it was Gloria. I was a little kid. And I remember just being like, hey, we're in a low-lying area. It's not good. We need to go to, you know, my aunt's house. So they didn't have windows. It was up on a hill. And so we did. And you know what we did? We went around the neighborhood and found the elderly and found people who were in a susceptible position. We said, come into safety. And I think that's the other application here, is if Christians really believed a storm was coming, we'd probably spend a whole lot more time inviting people into the safety of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced we're not there right now culturally because we spend so much more time on lesser than issues, fighting and bickering and convincing. Instead of, hey, grab somebody, I don't care, mask, unmask, prayer walk around your neighborhood. Beg the Lord that he will bring people to safety. Beg the Lord that he will give you, give you courage to open your mouth. I've been praying that myself because I am just as susceptible to being lulled to sleep. And I'm going to just hit on this because we don't have time to dig through it. But verses 45 to 51 give this picture of Jesus calling his followers to wait reliably. To wait reliably. It's essentially a picture of, of a master leaving a house and a servant in charge. And the first servant takes care of the other servants and takes care of the house and he's rewarded when the master unexpectedly returns. The second servant when the master leaves, said, ah, he's late. I don't know when he's going to come back. And he goes and gets hammered. And he goes on a power trip and he abuses the other servants. When the master comes back, he said, there's judgment because what is revealed is you're actually an unfaithful servant. And so here's the reality, friends. It's something we need to know about our hearts is that delay breeds bad behavior. If you've ever been a student in any classroom, you know what happens when the teacher leaves the room and takes a little while longer than expected to return, right? I think it was about two minutes. I remember it, right? I'm sitting in high school. Teacher leaves a room. Keep doing your work. Okay, cool. And then like two-minute mark hits. And if that teacher is not in the room, something's flying, right? Something's going to go flying across the room or yelling and screaming. And then the teacher walks in and it's like, <gasps> you know that. You've been there, right? You educators, you've done that before. I, I know that that has been a part of the deal for you. And that's just the reality of our hearts is that delay can breed bad behavior. Friends, what Jesus is saying here is, 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 is those who really are calling to me in faith and walking by faith in me are the ones who are the same when I'm away as when I'm present. Holiness in the in-between times from Jesus' time on earth to his return becomes one of the true marks of the Christian.
First Thessalonians 5 gives us a little bit of a picture of what it means to wait reliably, and this is going to move us towards communion. But, but it says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God is not destined to us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Friends, in brief, Paul unpacks what it looks like to wait reliably using two metaphors. The first is calling us away from darkness. There's lots of lists you can read in Scripture. There's lots of things that describe the intentions and the motivations of the human heart that are essentially just rebellion against Him. And He calls them away from that. And these pictures of these two parables, drunkenness, right? Numbing our minds to these realities, pretending it's not coming, and anger. Anger. And, and friends, don't, don't let this slip away from you that he's saying, hey, the unfaithful servant is the one who mistreated God's other servants. I think he's talking about in the household of faith, the danger of the abuse of one another. Anger and infighting and division. Those should be warning lights for us. But then he puts it positively. He calls them to light. That's sobriety. Being sober to the reality of Christ's return. To love. And then to faith and hope. And here's what the faith and hope is in. It's the fact that as we just read, Christ endured the full strength of the storm so that we did not have to face the wrath of God. So that He invites us into His safety. Saying the storm will come, but I'm your storm shelter. I absorb the wrath. You don't if you turn to me in faith. Friends, let's live into the safety of our Savior. And the weight is hard. Our hearts tend to drift towards apathy and rebellion. But Jesus will return. And living out of that is living out of faith that we have refuge in Him. Let me pray as we move to communion. Father, (laughs) admittedly, this is a strange Mother's Day passage. But this is always a reality. No matter a holiday, or what we're recognizing. And Lord, there is great hope in the refuge we have in You. And so would You, as we move towards communion, tune our hearts to the hope that we have in You. And we pray these things in Your name. Amen.